0: This, then, is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere, in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit?
1: Well, what do you make of that? Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, When I was invited to come and preach today, my, my initial response was to feel grateful for the privilege of coming and sharing with you. That sense of gratitude persisted right up until the moment when I discovered what the Bible passage allotted to me was. After that, not so much. You see, this passage that Pam has read to us so clearly, those 21 verses from Paul's fourth chapter of the first letter to the church at Corinth, uh, they seem to me to be one of those passages of the Bible which, which underline this truth. Undoubtedly, all of Scripture is inspired. But that does not mean that all passages of Scripture are are equally inspiring. Do you understand what I mean? Some passages are, you just read them and your heart rate speeds up and you you just with them in your spirit and you immediately grasp what the writer is getting at and it's easy and it's uplifting. This passage, really, not so much. But it is undoubtedly useful to us. The Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. When we read it, when we study it, when we think about it, the Bible will always add value to our lives. I mean, if we didn't believe that, we really wouldn't apply ourselves to it very much at all, would we? And this passage is no different. And I do admire this about you, That having resolved to study Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, you are clearly resolved to study all of it. Not only the easy bits and the uplifting bits. It does us good to wrestle sometimes, doesn't it? With those passages which don't just fall open before us in quite the same way. Now the backdrop, and I won't spend many moments on this I hope, because you are now well into this study of Paul's first letter, Um, But the backdrop, of course, is this. Very sadly, Corinth was a broken church. I've thought about whether there's a, a more succinct way of putting that, and I'm not sure that I can find one. Corinth was a broken church. We talk sometimes about broken homes, don't we? Someone might say, I come from a broken home. Well, according to the Bible, a local congregation of believers is a family. You are the household of faith, according to Paul's letter to the Galatians. And in all families, natural and spiritual, uh, tensions are almost inevitable, aren't they? Uh, No one's nodding and affirming that, which worries me slightly. It makes me feel I'm the only rat bag in the place, you know, See, I was speaking, forgive me if you've heard me say this before, but I was invited to do a speech at someone's golden wedding anniversary just a while ago. And the gentleman who was celebrating 50 years of marriage, uh, he made a speech just before I was invited to say a few words. And to my astonishment, he said this. Well, he said, we've been married for 50 years. He said, and I cannot remember a single cross word between us. I got up next and said, well, I think that says more about your memory than it does about your marriage. And if the Lord spares Rita and I to 50 years together, and we're kind of closing in on that, it's our 47th wedding anniversary just a few days ago. If the Lord spares us to 50 years, and I make a speech at our golden wedding anniversary, I will be able to say a great many positive things about my life with Rita. Uh, Hopefully she will even be able to find a few to say about her life with me. But neither of us will be able to claim that we cannot remember a single crossword between us. Because it's just inevitable in the knockabout of life and family and relationship that we will occasionally, like those dodging cars at a you know at a theme park or a fun fair, we will occasionally just bump into each other. And there'll be moments of tension and difficulty. And if a family can be broken, so can a church. And that's what had happened at Corinth. And very quickly, they were broken, well, in a number of ways. It's a a most unedifying list, so I'm not going to give it to you in full. But there were basically three areas where relationships had become badly fractured and the church had become broken at Corinth. They were broken relationally. In the way they connected or rather didn't connect with each other. In fact, First Corinthians makes it clear that relationships had got to such a low ebb that in order to resolve their disputes, being unable to do it amicably and with a lot of grace between themselves, they were actually dragging each other into court. Now that is washing the church's dirty linen in public with a vengeance, isn't it? And the only loser would have been the testimony of the Christian church in court. So relationally they were really quite badly broken and things were really at a very low end. In fact things had got so bad in terms of the attitudes which they were taking to one another that the Apostle Paul astoundingly writes to them later in the first letter and says your meetings because of your underlying attitudes, are actually doing more harm than good. It would be better for you, it would be better for the church, it would be better for the testimony, if you stopped meeting. That is an incredible thing to say, isn't it? That's what Paul writes to him in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I suspect that if I'd been part of the congregation at Corinth, or you'd been part of the congregation at Corinth, our instinct and inclination would have been mine, certainly would have been to turn around and challenge that. And say, but Paul, when we, when we come together and we take bread and wine and we remember what Jesus has done for us, and someone brings a word of prophecy and somebody brings a, a, a song and somebody leads us in prayer, we're, we're taking great pains, Paul, to do it right. We're trying to model what we do on the pattern that Jesus established on that night that he was betrayed. You know, we're we're, we're sharing bread and wine and we're all getting involved in various ways and we're trying to do it right would well, say, yes, your form is right, but your attitudes to each other, the fallout between you, the contamination, the toxicity of your relationships, is actually sabotaging what you're doing. Because it's the very antithesis of how Jesus was to his friends when he broke bread that first time. He took off his clothes and he wrapped himself in a towel, And he washed his disciples' feet. And you people, by contrast, you come around the Lord's table, but you come with these attitudes of selfishness, you're jostling each other, you want to get to the front of the queue, you're trying to assign subordinate places to each other, you're unthinking and uncaring, and so this is what Paul writes. So, it is not the Lord's supper which you eat. Do you see, they were badly broken in terms of their relationships. Also, secondly, they were broken theologically. They seemed to be subject to some considerable confusion about some of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, not least the doctrine of the resurrection. Both the resurrection of Christ and the implications of the resurrection of Christ for Christian people. They were hopelessly up in the air and at sixes and sevens concerning resurrection and other matters of theology. Thirdly, they were broken evangelistically. Paul has to write to them just three years after many of them had come to know Christ as their saviour by listening to and responding to the gospel which Paul had preached to them. Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 15 and he says, I I, I just feel it's necessary, it's incumbent on me, there's an obligation on me to remind you of the gospel which I preached to you which you heard, which you believed, which you received and by which you are saved, I've got to remind you of this. Three years, it's a sort of short-term spiritual amnesia has afflicted the Christians in kind. Some of you perhaps will know that little story of the um, been going around for a long time now, but it's a lovely story about a, a professor at one of the uh, Oxbridge colleges and uh, he was noted, he was known for two things. Uh, one his great scholarship and learning and and secondly, his great absent-mindedness. And uh, one day he rose and washed and dressed and all the rest and was taking himself off to his college. And as he was leaving the house after breakfast, his wife said, now, darling, you won't forget, will you? We're moving today. <laughs> so when you come home tonight, we won't be here, you know, we'll be at our new address. Oh, of course I won't forget, he said. Drew himself up, you know, took a bit of umbrage. What do you think I am, idiot? You know, of course I won't forget at all, Well that day he got on doing whatever professors at Oxbridge Colleges do, I really wouldn't know. But he got on uh, doing whatever he did and at the end of the day of course he went into automatic pilot, you know what what I mean? And he just retraced his normal steps home and he arrived outside his front door and he let himself in and then he stopped dead in his tracks. The place was empty, furniture, fittings, carpets all gone. He called out for his wife and family. His voice just echoed around the empty hole and empty rooms. And in a daze, he stumbled out onto the pavement. And whilst he was standing on the pavement looking bemused, a little boy came up to him and said, uh, he said uh, to the little boy, he said, uh, excuse me, young man, but do you know where the people who used to live in this house have gone? And the boy said, it's all right, Dad. <laughs> yeah. You come home with me, Well, of course, that's the sort of thing which was afflicting the believers at Corinth. They'd they'd become neglectful, if not out-and-out forgetful, about the very core of the Gospel. And that broke them evangelistically. How can you reach out to people, effectively, if you haven't really got your mind and your heart, really set on what the heart of what God wants to say to people really is? This wonderful Gospel, the good news about Jesus. There was an evangelist... Um, oh, well over a 100 years ago now very famous in his day called Gypsy Rodney Smith he was I suppose in some regards the Billy Graham of his day and he was still preaching in his 90s and somebody said to him Gypsy Rodney Smith how do you, how do you stay so fresh and this is what he said he said I have never lost my sense of the wonder of the gospel that's it that's what was missing amongst the believers at Corinth. And so Paul writes to him in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, I want to remind you of what lies at the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel, Tim, that's going to be proclaimed on Warwick campus and Birmingham campus and other places. And if this is on my heart. It's 40 years ago this week since I led my first university mission at the University of Warwick. And I was this morning at a service attended by some people who were on the CU exec at that time and they were the ones who engaged me and people came to Christ. The wonder of the gospel, Paul says, there are two wonderful things which are declared and revealed in the gospel. Christ died for our sins. In other words, God has done something about the problem of our sin. The problem of our sin is it cuts us off from God. Christ, the sinless one, has done something about that. He died for our sins. And the second great thing in the gospel is that Christ was raised from the dead. He's done something about the problem of our death. Our mortality he has been raised and those who believe will be raised in him and Paul says now unless you recapture that unless you put that to the fore frankly friends let's be clear I'll be clear with you Marco as the pastor and others here who are elders and church members and visitors if we're not telling people that that Christ has died for our sins he's done something about the problem of our sins and he's died and risen again he's done something about the problem of death and we can live also if we're not telling people that we're not telling people the gospel we're really not So you see, that's the backdrop to this somewhat strange, I come back to it. I mean, I've read this passage, 1 Corinthians 4, a number of times, many times, in fact, in preparation for this afternoon. I've cried to God, oh God, I want to be clear on this passage. But in order to be clear what Paul is getting at, I need to understand something of the situation into which Paul is speaking, into which he is writing. And that's the backdrop. Broken relationships, broken theology, broken evangelism, and of course had this terrible factionalism, almost verging on sectarianism as people lined up between behind this preacher or that leader or the other leader and not content with lining up behind their favourite leaders whether it was St Peter or St Paul or Apollos. They weren't content with supporting one man, they were also intent on rubbishing everybody else. And that's really what Paul is writing about when he gets into 1 Corinthians and chapter 4. So let's look again at the passage. We can have it on screen, perhaps that would be helpful for us. And you've got your Bibles there on 1 Corinthians and chapter 4. Uh, I just put this little insert in, if I may. Um, Some of you may be quietly thinking to yourselves, um, when is this man going to shut up? (laughs) Some of you may be quietly thinking to yourselves, uh, well, great, Bob, um, you know. You're doing a great job of sort of washing the church's dirty lid in the public. You've just emphasised the problems which can be present in a Christian church. And maybe some of you are thinking, hey Bob, you're not helping. You know, we want to grow this church. We want people to join this church. I do as well. I want people to come to believe in Jesus Christ as their saviour and commit to follow him as their Lord and to commit to working out what that means in the company of this church, Kenilworth Christian Church. I really do. But I want them to join the real church. You see, churches are made up of imperfect people, and consequently, we are imperfect churches. Now you'd think that having been forgiven so much by God, we'd be quite ready to cut each other a bit of slack, and, and spread a bit of forgiveness around, but the sad truth is we are not always. So I want people to join the church, but if you do it, join it with your eyes open. We're imperfect. Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven. And we're going to stumble along and sometimes we're going to get it right and sometimes we're going to get it wrong. But I will say this, I've been a follower of Christ for 53 years and I've been in leadership and ministry for 47 years and I'm absolutely convinced that there is no company of people on the face of God's earth quite like the company of God's people. And I've lost count of a number of times in my life when I've been grateful to be part of a church family and the support and the blessing and the benefit and the help that I have derived from that is just beyond my ability to really express to you. It's a great family to belong to. Warts and all, problems and all. It's still a great family to belong to. And let me tell you this, at the risk of being slightly impertinent. Um, The church, any church, including this church, is full of ratbags. You'll fit right in, okay? Well now, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In chapter 3, Paul has been uh, drawing an illustration from agriculture. He said that in order for there to be a harvest gathered in... In agricultural terms, a number of people have to play some fairly significant roles. Someone needs to prepare the soil, the seed bed. Somebody needs to sow the seed. Somebody needs to irrigate the field. And somebody, of course, has to go out and do the reaping. And it's just the same in, in the church. So Paul says that I've been given particular work to do for God. So has my friend Apollos been given work to do for God. So has St Peter been given work to do for God. We've all got to do our part. And that's one of the points he's been making in in chapter 3. And in this, no one person is to be considered more strategic or more important than any other person. Everybody must play the part which God has fitted them for and called them to. You know, for about 35 years or or so, myself and my friend and colleague Ivor Cooper, we we ran and preached at Christian youth and children's camps every, every summer. And indeed, for nearly 47 years, I've been involved in in Christian camp work. Even this coming summer, despite being full of years, um, I'm speaking at a teenager's camp in in Cornwall. And in the old days, as it were, when we started our camps, they were proper camping, you know. Not camping for softies in conference centres and uh, and schools, but under canvas on a greenfield site. And everything was basic. Often we managed without any electrical power. We certainly didn't have flushing toilets. And of course for a camp, if you've got 90 children or young people living under canvas for a week, there's a lot of work to do. And a lot of people have to play their part, and some of the parts are very obvious, and some parts are very unseen. So, at the front of the camp, of course, would be the person who was running the camp. And at the front of the camp would be somebody like me who was preaching to the teenagers and the children at the camp. And we were the high-profile people. Scarcely any less high-profile, because they were highly visible at least three times a day, were the people who were cooking the food. But when everybody else was in the meeting in the main marquee, or often when everybody else was in bed, tucked up safely for the night, there were a few people, and they were part of what we used to call the bog squad. You get it? their job was to keep the latrines tidy, to literally get in there and get rid of the waste, you see. And had they downed tools and gone on strike, I think I would have had a problem really connecting with my hearers, don't you? You see, who's to say who's most important? Everybody has to play a part. That's what Paul has been saying. And then in chapter 4 as he comes on to it, I've identified four points just following on with what he's been saying about the foolishness of uh, dividing up the fellowship behind um, favoured leaders and preachers. And in verse 1, here is the first of those four points. It is this. Properly called and mandate, you follow the scripture, properly called and mandated leaders are God's servants and they should be acknowledged as such. So then, verse 1, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. Now Paul isn't asking to be considered to be somebody grand and superhuman, he's just asking to be recognised for who he is and what he is. I was in Moldova last November in Eastern Europe and I was introducing myself as I went around the country speaking in various situations. I was introducing myself, uh, uh, as I said I am a, I am a pastor, uh, that, that's easier for them to kind of really get their minds around than the idea of someone being an evangelist, I, 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 I'm a pastor and a, and a preacher. And uh, one day I spent the day with, with, a, with a Moldovan pastor and that day I had the privilege of preaching to two groups of firefighters and a group of police officers, prison officers and probation officers. And my pastor friend said, «Brother Bob, don't introduce yourself today as a pastor» there were sort of local ecclesiastical reasons why he felt that wouldn't be appropriate I said how should I introduce myself very interestingly he said just tell them you're a servant of God very interesting it goes quite against the grain for us to declare ourselves to be that but actually anybody whom God has called into ministry and into leadership amongst God's people is the Lord's servant and that's the first point Paul makes you see, people were disputing the authenticity of Paul's calling to be an apostle. They were disputing his authority, saying God had not called him and not, God had not mandated him, whereas God had called and had mandated someone else. And Paul says, all I'm asking for is just to regard me as a servant of God. A little later on in, the episode, in, in his second letter, uh, Paul expresses his astonishment... At the fact the Corinthians were asking him for some written credentials. Give us some credentials which authenticate your call to ministry and your call to leadership. Paul turns around to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and says, Really? You are my credentials. If it hadn't been for the reality of the authenticity of my ministry, you wouldn't even be saved. You are my letters of commendation. So Paul says, All I am, I'm the Lord's servant. And all those of us who are called into leadership and ministry, that is who we are. That is who we ought to be, the Lord's servant. The second point is also in verse 1. It is this, that people called to leadership and ministry have been entrusted with something. Verse 1 refers to the secret things of God, given as a trust to those who proclaim it. In another place, Paul writes about the mystery made known to me by revelation. Now, when the word secret is used here, it doesn't mean something to be kept confidential. It means something which was previously kept confidential, but is now to be revealed. The mystery which God revealed to Paul, the secret things of God, was that it's been God's intention right from the get-go to reconcile himself to people and people to himself, all people on the same basis that Christ has died for their sins. No longer depends on birth, there's no advantage of being a Jew, there's no disadvantage of being a Gentile. God wants to reconcile people to himself, all on the same basis. But Christ has died for each one of them. And Paul says, now I've been entrusted with that message. And he goes on to say that it's important, it's required in verse 2, that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Those who preach and teach this mystery, those who declare this secret, this message of the gospel, those who preach the whole counsel of God must be faithful to the message which they preach. The gospel, in case I'm being less clear than I want to be at this point, the gospel is not negotiable. It is not capable of being improved. It does not require to be edited. It does not need to be amended you understand the Bible talks about the faith which is once and for all delivered to the saints those of us who preach the gospel must stay faithful to the message which we preach if we preach another gospel then we're preaching a perversity of the gospel that's what Paul writes in one of his later letters third point here in the beginning of uh, chapter 4 this time in verses 3 to 5 look at those verses with me Paul writes, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. What matters to Paul is not what other people think about him. He's not pleading as he is to be recognised as God's servant for the sake of his reputation. He's not asking for his ego to be stroked. He's saying, I don't really care what judgment people make of me. I don't even trust my own judgment of my life and my ministry. What matters to me is not what you think, it's what God thinks about me. And if we're going to serve the Lord in any situation, we've got to get to that point. What really matters to us. People say to me, do you get nervous before you preach? Do you know the answer to that? Yes, every time. And I have preached over 12,000 times on at least five continents. Many, many times. And I never mount the pulpit. Never mount the steps to the front of church without feeling some nervousness and apprehension. But it's not nervousness of you. It's a sense I don't want to let the Lord down. What does God think, you know? Years ago there was a man, he was the master of Balliol College at Oxford. His name was Benjamin Jowett. He was recognised as a raconteur and a wit. And one evening at a dinner party someone apparently said to him, Dr. Jowett, we would be most entertained if you would give us your opinion of God. He said, Madam, I would consider it a great impertinence to venture my opinion of God. Indeed, it has been my unceasing anxiety to know what God's opinion is of me. That's where Paul is. What matters is what God thinks about us, not what other people think about us. And God will be our judge. That's what Paul says. And when God judges, it will be judgment by the right person, because we are the Lord's servants, not each other's. It will be judgment at the right time, and it will be judgment on the right basis, because God sees everything. You see, when we make a judgment of someone, particularly if we are quick to write them off, we do so with insufficient data. We're always working on inadequate data. But God isn't. God will bring to light the things which have been hidden in darkness. God will apportion praise and reward on a just and a proper basis. And point four in this is in verses six and seven, where Paul effectively says, any usefulness that any of us have Whether it's Apollos or Paul or Peter or Marco or Wayne or Jim or even Bob. Any usefulness any of us have. Any gifts that we have which we use for God and for his service. They come from God. It's all a gift from God. You see that in verses 6 and 7. Brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written, then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For what makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Everything you've got is a gift from God. Particularly that is true in terms of, of ministry. The Bible says Paul is going to go on and write in chapter twelve to he's going to address the confusion about spiritual gifts which was in the church. I won't preempt the sermon that's going to come up on that. I don't envy the person who's preaching it, so I'm certainly not going to preempt it. But Paul is going to write and make this point in one Corinthians twelve seven. I have a little mnemonic which helps you to remember what one Corinthians twelve seven says. What it says is the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the common good. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the common good. My mnemonic is this, to each for all. God gives spiritual gifts, abilities to serve him, to each one of us, and he gives them for the benefit of all of us, to each, for all. And at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, it's the Holy Spirit who gives gifts to people as he determines. So whatever God has given you, whatever your spiritual gift is, whatever your God-given ability that you can bring to the party and serve the Lord with, it's a gift from God, and it's right for you. Therefore, no envying of other people's gifts, that's out of order, and no boasting about the gift you have. That's what Paul is saying. What do you have that you weren't given? And if it was given to you, why do you boast about it? Because it's a gift from God. Now, we come to verses 8 to 13 uh, very quickly. Um, uh, these, I think, are, are, are perhaps some of the more difficult verses in the passage. And so I'm just going to... Uh, give you a broad brush of what these verses are saying verses 8 to 13 it is quite evident from the passage 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 8 and moving onwards here's your first point from the passage that uh, having a call to ministry and leadership is not a guarantee of an easy life I mean that's that's blatantly obvious isn't it because Paul was called to be an apostle and he was sent into ministry and uh, and yet as he writes about himself he says i faced humiliation hunger homelessness danger nakedness persecution by comparison says paul you've had it easy i've suffered all this for your sakes so i could bring the gospel to you and build you up in your most holy faith and so it comes. it's a bit strong, says Paul in this passage, or, or at least he implies this in the passage. It's a bit much now that my having gone through all this for your sakes, now I find that some of you are rubbishing my call to be an apostle, denying my God-given ministry and authority, and even those of you who are supporting me, in an attempt to help me, actually you're not helping at all because what you're doing is just creating a faction within the church because you're, you're, you're following me but you're refusing to accept the benefit and the blessing and the insight from anybody else. Don't do that. Don't do that. Paul is saying neither I nor Apollos want to become leaders of a faction within the church. We need to be very careful, friends, that we do not... Encourage the development of factions within local churches as we line up between people that we feel most affinity for. And it's a very dangerous thing to do, actually. We need to beware of sectarianism. You see, sectarianism actually starts when people give credence and loyalty to just one person and stop listening to anybody else. And it's a very small step from saying, my leader is the best leader, to saying my leader is the only true leader and it's another small step from saying my leader is the only true leader to saying my church is the only true church do you see how the progress moves we need to be very careful about one of the marks of a cult is that it has what's called an exclusive ecclesiology an exclusive ecclesiology means that the church says you can't be saved outside of our group you see and that begins when you begin to honour one leader and refuse to benefit from the insights and the input of anybody else. And Paul is writing here saying, be very careful about doing that. Keep a broad picture of the church, friends. And value the insights. And appreciate and respect the ministry of people, even if they are not your favourite preachers and favourite pastors. Well, as he goes on in chapter 4, and I'll draw to a close because as such a lot here but as he goes on in chapter 4 and verses 15 and 16 he reminds them of of two things number one he says i want to remind you that you came to christ through my ministry i became your father in christ so it's not asking too much that you might have some remnant of fondness for me seeing that god used me in that way in your life and the second thing he's reminding them of is this he's basically saying you had an opportunity to observe me closely for 18 months whilst i was in corinth You should know that I am authentic as a Christian and as a a follower of Christ. Um, If you've seen that authenticity in me, then imitate me. That is what Paul is saying. Not imitate me in the way I speak or my mannerisms. I I know years ago, you know, there was a man who used to teach people to preach, and this particular chap had a great shock of hair, and uh, it would fall across his face when he was preaching. And he had this this little mannerism that every few seconds he'd shake his head and toss this great mane of hair back, you know. And it was reckoned you could always tell people who'd been taught to preach by that man. Even if they were bald. Every few seconds in the sermon they'd flick their non-existent hair back, you see. Paul's not asking for mimicry. He's saying, look, I was with you for 18 months. You had a chance to examine my life. Did you like what you saw? Did you see when I was sincere and authentic? Then imitate me in that authenticity. And then he concludes, and we'll pick it up at this point. In, uh, pick it up at verse 18. And this is Paul's closing of the, the chapter. He says, he's just said in the earlier verses, I'm sending Timothy to help you, Timothy. Uh, he is very much one with me in my heart, he, he has my values, uh, he, he speaks for me, he can help you. But then in verse 18 he says this, some of you have become arrogant. People in the church were throwing their weight around. And the reason they were doing it was they believed they could get away with it because they didn't think Paul was ever going to actually turn up. Some of you were becoming arrogant as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, always an important provisor. I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power. Now what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and a gentle spirit? Paul says, I can come to you with a big stick, or I can come to you and be gentle. It's really up to you. You choose. Get yourselves sorted out, and I will come and be gentle and nurturing. If you do not, I will come and spiritually knock a few heads together. And we say, well, that's very strange. We're not used to that sort of language in the church, are we? We don't think or talk very much about church discipline, even in its mildest forms. As somebody once said, when, it, when all is said and done about church discipline, a great deal more is said and never gets done. And maybe that's the way it ought to be. But here's Paul being very forthright, I'm going to come and knock a few heads together. I'm going to come and show you what real apostolic power is if you don't get yourselves sorted out. Well of course uh, Paul was an apostle and that was a very distinctive role in ministry for that time and that place and it can be argued and indeed I would argue but we don't have people in exactly that sort of role in our churches today. But let's make no bones about this and you need to hear this as as a relatively new church and a growing church. The Christian church universally and a local church in a community is not a free for all. It's not a situation in which everybody does just what they like. It's not even, strictly speaking, a democracy. It is, the Bible says, it's a body, and the body receives its direction from the head. It is a family, and the children receive their direction from the parents in whom the authority has been invested. It is an army. And people are placed in positions. There is a chain of command. And that is true of a local church. God has appointed people in the churches who are over us in the Lord. And in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 13, we're told we should obey those people. We should respect those people for the hard work they do for us. Remembering that they must themselves give account to God. We should be subject to them, provided that their way of life, again Hebrews 13 is is something which is creditable and something which we can see is authentic and genuine. So there is authority even in a local church. Now no pastor, no elder in this church is going to ever stand up here and say you know if you don't get yourself sorted out I'm going to knock a few heads together. That probably wouldn't be appropriate in our day and age. But don't ever think that the local church does not have authority, it does. Christ is ahead and he has appointed people. And that's the word of God to us today from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for any understanding that you've given us from this passage. We pray that you will just underline and underscore in our hearts anything you've had to say to us personally. That we might go away with something on which we can feed in our hearts by faith. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Thank you, friends, for your fellowship this afternoon. The Lord bless you.